0: Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. I want to talk about honest prayers this morning. Honest prayers. And so I'm excited to open up God's Word with you. While I'm giving this preamble, feel free to make your way to Psalm 73. We're going to be parking in Psalm 73 this morning, and we're going to look at an honest prayer. I started a Bible reading plan in January, and something that I am loving about it is now I am regularly reading in the Psalms. It's been a while since I've regularly read in the Psalms. Now I get that opportunity daily, and I am loving it, loving what Jesus is speaking to me, the language of prayer that he's teaching me. It's been phenomenal. And so that is what we're going to look at this morning, one particular Psalm, and we're going to talk about how Scripture models to us honest prayers. The prayers that I find in Scripture challenge me to be more honest with God. And when it comes to honest prayers, and the type I'm talking about are the deep from the heart prayers, I often feel like I need to add qualifiers or caveats to my prayers. And as Canadians, we tend to be really great at saying hard things in fluffy ways. Would you agree? Yeah, we're a bit fluffy sometimes. Now, that's okay. We like to keep it politically correct. We like to skirt around the issues. We like to dodge, dive, and duck with fancy words. All of that isn't just a Canadian thing, by the way. That's a human thing. Sometimes the truth makes us feel uncomfortable. Now, I'm all for tact in the way that we speak. So to swing to the opposite extreme, to just be blunt, and purposely try to be divisive with our words, that wouldn't solve the problem either. But I wonder, this fear of honesty, how does it affect our prayers? Are they honest prayers? So here's a question for you. Have you ever tried making yourself look better before God when you pray? I don't know if if that's ever been a problem for you, but I found myself getting stuck in trying to present myself as better than I actually am in prayer. And that's ridiculous, of course. Because we know that God sees everything. Just imagine for a moment that you had a really bad accident and you busted up your arm. Now you go to, your, to, the, to the doctor and they do an x-ray, okay? And the doctor, what's the doctor seeing? Seeing right through the flesh to the bone, right? And there's a big crack in the bone. It doesn't matter how much you try to convince that doctor, I feel fine, I'm good, it hardly even hurts. He's looking right at it and going, no, it's broken, like you need a cast. I don't want a cast. I swear it feels great. No, it doesn't matter. And that's what it's like when we try to pray and make ourselves appear better before a holy God. So, here's the truth. God already sees your heart and my heart. He sees the good, the bad, and the ugly, so there's no point on hiding in the shadows because God already knows So the invitation remains step out into the light in prayer. And I find myself fighting against that. I wanna hide the parts, cover up the parts that I'm not so comfortable with showing to God or to others. And so I shrouded in spiritual talk. Oh, God, would you bless them? Yes, yeah, bless them, God, and be with them today. Meanwhile, in my heart, I'm like, I hope that they spill coffee on their laptop today. I'm so upset with them. I hope that they get to Tim Hortons and the donut they want is out of stock. <laughs> That's what we're actually feeling. But we go, oh, Lord, bless them. Bless them, Lord. Make them prosper. Because we want God to look on us and go, boy, this guy is good. He wants to, them to be blessed. You see, prayer is communion with God, where we see God and where we're seen by God. And that is the transformative nature of prayer. Prayer is a furnace that transforms the heart. That's what it's supposed to do. But here's the problem. God is not interested in transforming the person that you pretend to be. I'm going to say that one more time. Because some of us have walked around for literally years with masks on. And so we forget that it's even there and we've come to believe the lies that we've said about ourselves, the the parts of us that we've pushed down and tried to suppress and pretend are not there, God is not interested in transforming who you pretend to be. But the good news is, he's saying to you and I, come as you are, and then the work of transformation can begin. Because prayer is not about getting what you want. Prayer is about learning what God wills for your life and then asking Him, please help me to want that too. And that takes a while. That takes time for the transformation to happen. So that's what we're talking about today. Tra- transformative prayer, honest prayer. Okay? So we're going to look at Psalm 73, we're going to break it down into three parts. Part 1 is verses 1 to 14, part 2, 15 to 20, part 3, 21 to 28. Does that sound like a good idea? Okay, hopefully it does. Um, But before we get there, let's pray together. Our corporate prayer request will come up on the screen now. Oh, soon, very soon. There we go, there it is. Okay, we are going to be praying for one of our corporate requests, which is the heart of prayer. We want to have a heart of prayer to encourage every generation to find Jesus and bring their needs to him in prayer. That's what we're encouraging this, in our prayer request. We want prayer to become at the center. And so I put a few things up there for you to pray that the Lord would increase our desire to meet with him personally in prayer, that the Lord would help us to step out of the shadows, to pray honestly, pray that the Lord would transform our hearts that we could honestly say, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. That requires transformation. And then lastly, let's pray that God would continue. He's already doing this. He's already answering our prayers, but that he would continue to create a culture of prayer here at Southland, including our prayer summits in our small groups, weekend services, and beyond. Yes? All right, so if you're comfortable with it, if if you're new to Southland, you don't have to pray along out loud, but we're gonna all pray together in unison. Uh, You can pray quietly in your heart too if you prefer that. Let's pray three, two, one. Let's pray for the heart of prayer. we thank you for the work that you are already doing here at our church. God, the work that you're already doing in our lives. We want to step into that furnace of transformation in prayer because we know that we can trust you, that you have our best intentions at heart. So God, give us courage to step out and pray honest prayers. And as we look this morning into your word, into a beautiful psalm, God, would you challenge us in this matter of prayer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so, Psalm 73, hopefully you're there already. Very quickly, who is this poem or this song written by? It was written by Asaph, and you might be wondering who that was. Well, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, but Asaph was a worship leader, in effect, for David and likely also in the time of Solomon. He was also listed as a seer or a prophet, a godly man. Both David and Asaph were renowned songwriters in their day. And so he has attributed 11 psalms in total to Asaph, Psalm 50, and then Psalm 73 to 83. You can go and check out his other works that he put together. Very quickly, 2 Chronicles points this out. And Hezekiah and the king and the officials commanded the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. And so that is Asaph. That is the poet that we are going to read from this morning. Let's read part one, verses uh, one to fourteen. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped, I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles, their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and they clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity, and their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak in malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth." Therefore their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely I have per- I, in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. How's that for an honest prayer to start the morning off? It's a prayer of Asaph. Keep in mind that we've only read through the first half, but so far, let's reflect on the words of Asaph here. In a nutshell, he's sharing his lament with God for the perceived inconsistency that he's observed and taken to heart, which is this. How is it fair that the wicked can live in peace and prosperity while the righteous suffer hardship? What gives? That's what he's asking to the Lord. And who, if they're honest, has not felt that before? Christians, who has not felt that before? How is that fair, Asked the soul. I've asked that. First of all, I'd like to point out that it's easy to spot when others have it better than us. Amen? That's easy. That doesn't take all that much talent or training to spot when somebody else, in our perception, has it better than we do. There are no... Asaph is noting the wicked, they've got no struggles. They're carefree. Their bodies are healthy. They're amassing wealth. Look at how good they have it. I mean, we all know that he's Being a little bit biased here, right? That's not actually true, but it feels true in the moment, doesn't it? I've felt that before. It's especially true when you yourself are facing hard times. Asaph said, every morning brings new punishments. Have you felt that? Felt like every day there's just another thing. When it rains, it pours. When am I going to get a break? Every morning brings new punishments. And then the compounding effect is when we, the good guys, perceive them, the bad guys, prospering. And that's when you have the recipe for why God, how God, how is that fair? And I think to me the most gut-wrenching line in this prayer, when I read it, that's what sparked the whole honest prayers. I read this line and I went, did he just say that to God? is when he stops in verse 14 and says, surely I've washed my hands in in innocence in vain. Do you recognize what he's saying to God? He's saying, surely following you doesn't benefit me at all. What am I getting out of this other than daily getting more afflictions? That is a gut-wrenching thing to say to God in prayer. That is a deep feeling within the heart. See, we live in a culture that celebrates sin. It has no problem with greed or with the pure pursuit of pleasure to the point that we've learned how to monetize envy. It's a wonderful marketing strategy. If you can make someone feel envy, you can get them to buy or pursue or endlessly chase almost anything. Isn't that true? And so we live in a culture that celebrates sin, and I think if Christians are going to be honest, we've all a time or two, or maybe many more, have envied the wicked. We've looked around at somebody else, somebody who lives carefree, who seems to have everything going their way, has money, has power, has any relationship that they want. How is that fair? They get everything and I get nothing. I'm just here, grinding it out and trying to be the good guy, and what am I getting in return? That's an honest prayer. Now I want you to consider Asaph's opening line. He says this, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who have a pure heart. And I want you to understand something, that Asaph actually believes that statement. He's not lying. He put that in there for a reason. He believes that opening line that God is good to Israel, to those that have a pure heart. Here's a man who's declared the goodness of God alongside of others for most of his life, by profession, and his lifestyle has been in alignment with pointing out the goodness of God, both past, present, and future. There's the prophetic side of Asaph. That's what he lived for, is Telling others about the goodness of God. And interestingly, it's that very fact that he believed that opening sentence that led him to the transition statement immediately following, which is, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. See, Asaph knew God to be good to Israel in theory, but he questioned, what about to me, practically? Knowing something up here in your head can be one thing. Getting it down into your heart can be another matter entirely. And notice, Asaph said his feet had almost slipped, as in he hadn't quite fallen flat on his face yet, but he's begun to lose his footing. And I don't know why that in sermon prep led me to watching videos of people slipping on ice, which was hilarious. (laughs) And then I confessed a little bit, watching others suffer. But man... (laughs) You guys should YouTube people falling on ice. (laughs) It's awesome. Okay. Um, But that's what I love about the Psalms. Asaph is working through some big feelings with the Lord. And that's just the point, is that he's working through those feelings with the Lord, meaning there is an appropriate time and place to work through the big wrestles of our heart. I see a lot of people myself included at times, have been tempted to this. We want to air our big feelings on social media or on the nearest blog post. Let's just go and share our biggest, toughest questions and wrestle it out because we just want to get it out there. And hey, that's not altogether bad. There is a place to talk about with other people. This is what I'm wrestling with. This is what I'm finding difficult in my faith. That's good, in fact. Questions are good. But notice that Asaph starts in prayer, and we're going to skip ahead. I'll give you just a little bit of a, a look into the next part. Verse 15, If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. So he takes it first to the Lord in prayer. Proverbs said, Sin is not, uh, sin is not ended by the multiplying of words, but the prudent hold their tongues. I like how Kyle Shepherd translated that one time, but the prudent hold their thumbs. As in, it's quick. I just want to share all my thoughts. The wise conceal their knowledge, but the fool's heart blurts folly. Right? We've all had a bad case of the blurt sometimes. When I, I've got this thing that is really bothering me, I just have to go and share it with everybody. Again, it's not that sharing is the problem. Questions are good. We need each other to wrestle through some of these hard things. But notice that Asaph starts by bringing it to the Lord in prayer. All right, moving on. This is where he's going to get to the heart of what he's troubled about. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. You see, the trouble for Asaph is this. He's caught between what he knows to be true, that God is good to those who seek him, and what he perceives around him. He looks around and he sees these wicked people prospering, those that have no regard for the Lord, and he's asking, how can it be like this? Furthermore, he himself, who is presumably good, is suffering affliction. That's important to note. Suffering is the backdrop of this psalm. It's kind of like the curtain behind the poet who's speaking is suffering and hardship. I'm not going to take a lot of time to unpack that aspect of this psalm, but if you want, almost exactly a year ago, I preached a little two-part series on the book of Jonah where I talked about the role of suffering within the life of a Christian. You can go back and listen to that. Okay, I'm not going to make that my main point or focus this morning. But to help us understand Asaph's wrestle, we need to wrap our heads around how he understood the righteous and the wicked and the outcomes of their lifestyles. Asaph's mind being Jewish would have been deeply saturated in the Torah in the first five books of the Bible. When he sung praises to the Lord, it was coming out of a place of deep meditation on God's word. And so, in the book of Exodus, the Lord enters into a covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai. That's called the Mosaic Covenant. And unlike... The unconditional covenants that God made with Adam and Eve in the garden, that would be uh, that a seed would come, right, and crush the head of the snake. A singular male seed would come and would crush the head of the serpent. Messiah was already predicted in the first three chapters of the Bible. That's incredible. And unlike the covenant that God made with Abraham, that God would form a nation, a chosen people, out of his offspring containing that promised seed and then give them the land as an everlasting possession and you would bless them and you would make them a blessing to others. So unlike those unconditional covenants, the covenant God made with Moses and Israel at Sinai was conditional. Here's what I mean by that. Simply put, God said, follow me and walk in my ways and it will go well for you. But if you turn from me, it will not go well for you. And that was personally true and that was corporately true for the people of Israel underneath that covenant. And this can easily be seen in Deuteronomy, which nicely summarizes. Deuteronomy chapter 28, it's going to kind of give two outcomes. The outcome of the righteous and the outcome of the wicked. Deuteronomy 28, 1 to 2. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow his commands I give you today, the Lord God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come on you and will accompany you if you obey the Lord. And then he goes on to list a bunch of really awesome blessings. Then we get to 28.15 and the Lord says this, However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all the commands and decrees that I'm giving you today, all these curses will overtake you. And then it outlines a bunch of really difficult things, the outcome of wickedness. This is wickedness in Asaph's mind. The wicked would include those from within the community of Israel that departed from the covenant that was outlined in the Mosaic Covenant, those that did not walk in the way of the Lord, but it also included those outside of the community, i.e. the surrounding nations. In plain, we're talking about those who walk in sin. That's when he's thinking the wicked, he's thinking those that are walking apart from the Lord, walking in their own way. Moreover, Asaph's understanding aligns with the surrounding theme of the book of Psalms. Start reading through the Psalms, and you're going to see this everywhere. Note, David wrote a very similar psalm, Psalm 37. It's just flipped. Asaph wrote 73, David wrote 37. Spurgeon, when he was talking about David and Asaph, said that David was like the sun and Asaph was like the moon. Said so they they echo each other, they follow each other. And this Psalm is very similar to Psalms 37 that David wrote. All throughout the Psalms you find this compare and contrast between the wicked and the righteous. I'm just going to show you Psalm 1, okay? Psalm 1 has often been called the preface to the Psalms, meaning it's a short little psalm, beautifully written, and it kind of acts as a generalization of the entire book of Psalms. If you want to look at it that way, it kind of, it's preface to. This is, in a nutshell, what the Psalms are teaching. Now, obviously, there are many other qualities and aspects of the Psalms, but in a general way, it's the preface So look at Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law both day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which will yield its fruit in season, whose leaf never withers. Whatever they do, whatever they do, prospers. What's Asaph upset about? That the wicked... See, you can see he's reflecting on, hey, David wrote a song about this. I thought that it was supposed to be the one planted by the stream that prospered. He ends Psalm 1 by saying, The Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. So Asaph is wrestling with this. And then for us as Christians, it's everywhere in Scripture. Think about Galatians chapter 6. Do not be deceived, God can be not, uh, not be mocked. Is it true that the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction? Well, yes, of course, it is true. But it's not a formula. It's not a formula, and it requires perspective. And I'm getting ahead of myself here. But just to give you a little bit of a hint of where we're going, Galatians 6 says, For at the proper time you will reap a harvest if you do not give up. That promise goes both ways. It it can be counted on. The path that you commit yourself to and don't give up on will produce a harvest. You can bank on it. Those that walk in righteousness will reap from the spirit life. Those who sow uh, into the flesh will reap destruction. So to summarize, Asaph understands that God is good. He understands that God blesses those who seek him and destroys those who turn from him where he gets caught is this how come my immediate observation tells me otherwise and again i ask who if they're being honest has never wrestled with a question like that god how is it fair perhaps you you've lost a, a loved one To health challenges, or you are currently facing health challenges. You ask, why God? Perhaps you have struggles in your marriage, or you have a kid that's gone astray, and you're asking, why God? Perhaps you've lost your job and you can't make ends meet, or you applied for that position and didn't get it, but they got that position and they weren't as qualified as you, and you're asking, why God? How come, God? It doesn't feel fair. I'm trying to follow you. Why aren't you blessing me? Job asked those questions. Do you think Paul, the Apostle Paul, ever wrestled with questions like that? I'm out here trying to obey you, Jesus. How come in every place I go, I'm facing hardship and persecution? How about Richard Wormbrand? A faithful pastor under communism. And when he's imprisoned and being tortured by people who are openly mocking God, do you think he ever asked, Why God? Why God? He's away from his wife and children. Or how about Dietrich Bonhoeffer? He stood his ground even when others in the church turned a blind eye towards wickedness. You'd think he never asked, Why God? Why am I here? What about Corey and Betsy Temboom, who stood with the people of Israel, even when it cost them their own lives? They lived to see others experience goodness, to give others a fighting chance against the onslaught of evil in their culture. And they ended up in a concentration camp. I would imagine that they asked why God In general, don't we ask, how come bad things happen to good people? And how come good things happen to bad people? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to advocate for disrespectful prayers to to God. We do need to remain reverent in prayer to God. But this is at the heart of what I'm talking about. Are you honest in your prayers? Or do you just sugarcoat the truth? Just... Grin and bear this difficult thing you're doing, you're going through, and say nice things out of your mouth to the Lord in prayer. Meanwhile, internally, you're wrecked by this question of how come God? I'll share just briefly a story that comes to mind for us. I've asked, we've asked our own why God questions. In the winter of 2018, Ellie and I went through a miscarriage. Our daughter passed away at 17 weeks inside of her mother's womb. We received this news on the same day that my grandfather passed away. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. I'll never forget that day. Suffice it to say, it was a difficult season for us. And a week after receiving the news, we had a scheduled operation to remove the remains of our daughter who was still inside the womb. It was a long and difficult day especially for my wife. We arrived at the hospital in Winnipeg where they informed us that I would not be allowed to accompany Ellie for any portion of the operation or for post-op. So I was left to sit for hours in a small yet crowded waiting room, along with many other people. My wife was alone for the most part of the day. Some things that I saw in that waiting room made me quite uncomfortable. The waiting room attracted several homeless people, Presumably to warm up, some of them openly drank alcohol and there was lots of foul language. Children were mixed into the whole thing. One gentleman sitting next to me was hardly dressed and he smelled strongly of urine. There were people in pain waiting desperately to receive medical attention and as I waited there with the limited contact I had with my wife, another husband and wife came into the waiting room and sat down next to me. Soon, his wife was taken away and it was just the two of us. So I struck up a conversation with him and I soon discovered why they were at the hospital. They were there to get an abortion. He explained to me that she had been very sick throughout the course of her pregnancy, so terminating the child just seemed like the best option to them. And as I sat there listening to their story with a broken heart, I asked myself some big internal questions. Why God? How come God? How can that be fair? Now, not that this is my point, but we've been on both sides of that equation, my wife and I. So as he shared his story, first there were feelings that rose to the top of anger. Two very different reasons to come to a hospital. But it did motivate me to pray and feel broken towards this whole situation and the state that our country is in. We're going to come back to this in our conclusion. But for now, we're going to put a pin in these why questions and finish reading this honest prayer of Asaph. The good news is that there is a hopeful ending. Perhaps you've already snuck a sneak peek. Not good. Just kidding. But the question is, what helped Asaph in the midst of this wrestle? Because that's the goal. The goal of the Christian life is not to be question and wrestle free, but the goal is to stay close to Jesus in our wrestling and to pray honest prayers. So let's read on. Part two perspective. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God, and then I understood their final destination. Surely you place them on a slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. So this is part two. Asaph prays, if I had spoken out like that, if he had taken these big wrestlings and just took them right into the tabernacle, right into the place of worship, he says he would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all of this, it troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God and then I understood their final destiny. The question of fairness was at the heart of Asaph's wrestle. That's the human that's natural human desire. We want things to be fair, don't we? That is when fair favors us. We really am all, we're all behind things being fair. We want justice. Except when it's not favorable to us. It wasn't until Asaph came into the house of the Lord that his eyes were opened and he saw the outcome of their way. Then his perspective was changed. Last week, Pastor Stefan, in an amazing sermon, if you didn't catch it, please go back and listen to it. A lot of what I'm sharing is actually just lending off of what he outlined for us last week. So, he reminded us that we were born into a sin nature, and the end result of unrepentant sin leads to death. That's basic Christianity 101. That's Romans 3.23, for the wages of sin are death. Sin is rebellion against our Creator and His designed order. And I think that far too many people see Christianity as a simple list of do's and don'ts. Just a book of rules. I call this perspective checkbox Christianity. This view reduces God to a harsh overseer. Check the right boxes and you punch your ticket to heaven. In effect, God owes you for your right deeds and your good moral living. Conversely, God is a killjoy out to ruin your fun. You better not get caught doing the bad things. And sadly, Christians have played a huge part in propagating this misrepresentation of God. While it may have the appearance of truth, it misses the heart completely. See, God is a good God. He is our creator. He designed us for life. And as creator, he has the right to determine the purpose for which his creation is to be used. And it's well within his rights to outline the do's and the don'ts. He is our creator. He gets to prescribe, what is your purpose on earth? He created you. That is within his rights as a creator. God has a good purpose and plan for us. And sadly, we turn from that and we rebel against him. And Pastor Stefan gave that illustration of presumably a road that led over a steep cliff. That would be terrifying if such a road actually exists. I guess we do have potholes that can swallow a car. But anyway, (laughs) um, would it be loving to know of such a thing and not warn someone that it was coming down the road? Not at all. We have a loving God who graciously warns us of the outcome of sin. Surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed? So, perspective. We have this phrase or this illustration at South End that goes way back to Pastor Ray, and I'm not sure if he got it from somewhere else, I don't know, but it's called the line and the dot. So, I think I've got a PowerPoint there. Next one. Okay, so I'm actually minoring here in graphic design, um, really challenging the guys in the cube to take it to the next level with these amazing graphics I put together. Um, So the line and the dot, there you can see it, pretty cool, hey? The idea is simple, life on this earth is like a dot, and it's a nice dot, filled with wonderful opportunities and great experiences, happy memories, yet also with pain and hardship too. And while you're in it, the dot seems big, all-encompassing even. But it's only a dot, and it's next to the line, and the line is eternity. By the way, the choices that we make now affect the outcome of our eternity. We are given a choice how we want to use that little dot that I'm so glad you can actually hardly see it. That was the point. You're like, there isn't a dot right? That's right. That's the present. And that's eternity. How foolish would it be to put all of our eggs in the basket of the dot without even considering the line of eternity? How foolish would it be to adhere to a purpose that says, just live for yourself in the dot, don't care about anyone else in their line of eternity, Where should our emphasis be? Just simply look at it. Oh, it should probably be on eternity. Much bigger perspective. And so it's here that I want to challenge us on something. What seems big to us now will not seem big to us or as big to us when we get to the line of eternity. And while we are in the dot, we need to get ourselves connected to the line that goes to an eternal perspective. That's what Asaph did. So here's a small rabbit trail. We need a bigger perspective, an eternal perspective, which can only come from God. We need to stop thinking in the dot. And here's what I mean by that. If the message that we preach is simply one of don'ts, if our focus is simply to avoid sin and just earn heaven instead, with a little bit of right living, we are going to fall into the envy of the wicked every time. If that is, in the end of the day, as a Christian, the the main focus is just simply don't sin. Don't sin. And then do some good things so that when I stand before Jesus, he will be like, all right, I guess you did some good stuff. Come on in here to heaven. If that is our worldview, we are going to fall into envy of the wicked every time. Within my role, I talk to a lot of young couples and a lot of young people in general about purity. And when I ask them how purity is going, I usually get the same reaction. It gets a little bit awkward. They get a little antsy. Maybe their head drops. They feel guarded. Why? Because when I use those words, how is purity going, immediately it is received as, did you screw up? Have you screwed up? Tell me, did you screw up? I'm going to call you to account on that. And so we feel very defensive by that. And there is a part of conviction, yes, that should confront us. But purity is not merely the absence of sin. It is the presence of God in our lives. So, young people, if your perspective is simply not to sin, if that's your definition of purity, you're going to fall into envy of the wicked. Because purity is not just the absence of sin. It's the presence of God with you. The indwelling filling of the Holy Spirit that fuels you. What is our prize is that we get to walk in step with the Spirit. And when we actually focus on that, I'm not saying we don't have to confess our sins. Yes, we do. That is a part of it. But we need to not just focus on don't sin, don't sin, don't sin. We need to have an eternal perspective. We actually get to walk in step with God now, and anything that we face, hardship, things that we quote-unquote feel we're missing out on, pales in comparison to what we get in eternity. Line and dot. We need that bigger perspective. When following Jesus feels difficult, which it will and we find ourselves envying the wicked, we need to get into God's presence for a realignment. And I'm going to say something here. If the description that Asaph gives of the wicked describes your life as a Christian, you've fallen completely for the trap of the dot. How does Asaph describe the wicked? Carefree free from common human struggles, always going on amassing wealth, always happy. If that is describing what you think the Christian life is, you're living in the dot. That's dot thinking. Perhaps that's part of the problem. We envy the wicked because we want what they have, or at least what we, they, we perceive that they have. We look to, say, celebrities Or whoever, politicians, people in power, people who seem to look at how easy they have it, look at all the money and the freedom that they have. And if we think that that is the goal, of course we're going to fall into envy of the wicked. What's our ambition? Is it an easy life? Is it comfort? Is that why we signed up to follow Christ? No struggles, carefree and amassing life? We've got the wrong rabbi then. That's not Jesus. That wasn't the call of Jesus. Now what I'm not saying is that we should all be without homes, completely opposite direction, never have anything material. No, God blesses with material things. Don't get me wrong. But if our focus is that's what it looks like to be blessed by God is you have all those things Well, of course, we're going to fall into the envy of the wicked who will always have a little bit more than we do. Even people who have a lot look to those who have more and live their whole life drooling over what someone else has. So, not only does wickedness ultimately lead to destruction, we are created for so much more than that. We were created for oneness with God now, In the dot, we can experience oneness with a God who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And we can experience eternal pleasures with God that he has stored up for those who believe. That's what Paul said. Read Philippians chapter 3. We won't even go there right now. But go to Philippians chapter 3. He's saying, I'm considering all these things that once meant so much to me as complete rubbish, for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus and the hope that he's called me to. C.S. Lewis said it like this. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition while infinite joy is offered to us. Yet like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum, because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. That's the truth. We're too easily pleased with things that actually, in the long run, will not pay off. And that's why my prayer is, God, increase my desire for you. That is what this psalm pointed me to. All week I've been praying, God, help me to want the things that come from you to not have these weak desires that lead me to stuff that will only end in destruction, cause me misery and pain. Increase our desires. But now we've got to bring this message to a close. And so, are you all still with me? All right. All right. Let's end it. Whom have I in heaven but you? We're going to end now by reading the last portion of Asaph's prayer. So starting verse 21. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And then afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy those, all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all of your deeds. So we've seen now Asaph come full circle in this psalm. He lost his perspective. He found himself envying those that neither knew God nor walked in his way of life. And he asked himself, is God really worth it? Or is all of this just in vain? Yet we end with this beautiful struggle. His eyes are lifted and he sees once again God in all of his goodness. So here's where we end. You see, Asaph was reminded of something that we all need to remember. Who are the wicked? Those that go astray? That was or is you. And that was or is still me. We're not only victims, as Pastor Stefan said, we are perpetrators as well. Now, yes, notice that Asaph is using past tense I was a brute beast before you. Past tense. Those that are in Christ Jesus been justified? Amen for that, right? I was a brute beast. But we know, deep down, we know that we still struggle with sin. That we still struggle sometimes with envy of the wicked. And over the last two weeks, we've been talking about our sin nature. And this is not to tear us down. This isn't to apply condemnation to a heart that has already broken over sin. No, not at all. But if we don't get the fact that we are all brute beasts, as Asaph put it, I'm afraid that the gospel will never make sense to us. The cross of Jesus will never make sense to us until we understand that that's me, that that's you. All of us are the wicked. All of us struggle with sin, and need a Savior, a Savior that has saved us, that is saving us, and that will save us one day when we stand with him in glory. All of us are relying on Jesus for salvation. Asaph says, yet I am always with you. You hold me by your right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire except you, And this is the gospel. This is the gospel to us, written in this beautiful prayer from Asaph. We are by nature sinful and deserving of wrath. On all accounts, we were cut off from God because of our wickedness, and we still struggle with sin, even as followers of Jesus. Yet, yet I am with you always. We stand before Jesus, and we pray honest prayers. And we have a God that's saying, come out of the shadows. I already see it. I see the brokenness. I see the wickedness inside. Yet, I am always with you. Come out of the shadows and be transformed. And remember, we're not at war against people. I love that that's something that we've been emphasizing Again, last week's message emphasized that so well. We're not at war with people. We're at war with wickedness, evil ideologies, and people that do wicked things, even propagate wicked things. Sin is very real. And God will judge the wicked. We can count on that. But remember that in the meantime, our job is to seek and serve the lost. A message like this shouldn't cause us to go, yeah, God, judge the wicked. That's right. I'm not going to envy them any longer. Light them up, Lord. No, no, no. Do you remember when Jesus' disciples said, Hey, is it time to rain down fire on the Gentiles? Aren't you glad that Jesus said, Hold it, hold it, not yet. We should not walk out of here, arms crossed, saying, Yeah judge the wicked. We should have our hearts transformed to be broken, like the Father's heart is broken when he looks out at a sinful world, running everything amok, breaking hearts, hurting people, taking the lives of the innocent. And we should have the Father's heart, God, help me to save those that are on that path to destruction. Give me your heart for the lost, because I am a brute beast. I stand before you. I am wicked, yet you are always with me. So in conclusion, what about our why God questions? What about fair? Here's the truth. This is the gospel, that God himself, the purest of all, totally good, let bad things happen to him so that we who have done wicked and bad things can experience the goodness of God found in Christ Jesus. Amen? That's the gospel that Jesus found us in our brokenness. And trust me, we don't want fair. We want grace. And that grace cost our Lord in blood. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We don't want fair. We cling to Jesus and say, how is it that you would let yourself be treated like that? For me, for us, that's the gospel. And then lastly, maybe there's a few in here right now that are struggling. You're going through a season of suffering and you're asking, how is it fair? And I'm not trying to downsize your suffering But this week I've been captivated by a line from another songwriter, a more recent-time songwriter, who said this. We know that Jesus said that faith, we could say to this mountain, move, and it would move, right? Most days' faith is like climbing the mountain that didn't move. You might be standing in the midst of many mountains going, how is it fair? Does God see me? Most days' faith is is climbing that mountain that didn't move alongside of the shepherd of your soul, the one who will walk you through every trial and hardship and one day will wipe away every tear. In the proper time, you will reap a harvest if you do not give up. Stay close to him. Never leave his side. So with that, I'll invite you to stand. Lord Jesus, as we go into worship, this closing song, I recognize in a room this size there will be many people experiencing many different seasons of life right now. Some rejoicing, some mourning. Some mourning for other people. Some rejoicing alongside of other people. Father, I pray that you would enc- we would encounter you God, it's difficult to go through hard times, but thank you that you never leave us to do that alone. God, would you encourage your people?